All right, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 7. If you don't have a copy with you, you can find it in the uh, Pew Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please, when you leave today, take that Bible with you. Um, we want that to be yours. John chapter 7, we're going to pick it up in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just read a few moments ago from your word in the book of Isaiah saying that your word does not return to you void, but it accomplishes everything that you set out to accomplish through it. And we ask for you to be faithful to that promise here this morning. That as we come as your people to your word, that you would form us, mold us to the truth that we read here and to the character of the Christ we encounter. Would you do this work in our hearts by your word this morning, Lord? And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. You know, it's, a, it's Labor Day weekend, if you didn't realize that. And it's a weekend where we celebrate all the great work that we do by not working, and it's a wonderful thing. It's a, uh, you know, it's a holiday that celebrates the end of summer, 
And uh, you, you could spend it in, you know, with family, with friends, you know, at the lake, or you know, whatever it is, just summer festivities. I want you to picture that you're out on the lake with some friends. And um, you know, one of your friends begins you know, talking to you and, and, and looking around the group and, and starts saying, hey, you know what? Isn't it wonderful that everybody in America gets today off because of my work? You're welcome, guys, for what I've done. I mean, you'd kind of be sitting there with, with a little bit of stunned silence looking around like, who is this guy? And maybe, you know, shove him out of the boat and say, oops, that was an accident. You know, like, we, we don't, what's, he, what's he really getting at? Well, we're going to see today that in our text, Jesus walked into one of the most foundational religious festivities for Israel and claims that it's all about him. That what they're celebrating is really him. And they're going to be saying the same thing. Who is this guy? What gives him the right to say stuff like this? And they're going to be confused about him. There's a lot of things that cause confusion. A lot of conversations you can be in that cause confusion. I'm in them all the time. Uh, Anytime something comes up about anything that has to do with any home improvement thing or anything around the house, uh, anytime something comes up about, hey, fix the car, anytime, you know, most of these conversations, I'm like, I have no idea. So what I do is I text my dad, help. And I say a little bit more because that's a concerning text to get. So I say, you know, here's what it is. But I'll, I'll often accompany it with the, you know, the Michael Scott memes of either I understand nothing or um, explain it to me like I'm five. You know, I, I'm easily confused when it comes to a lot of these situations. But did you know that the most confusing situation that has ever been introduced to human minds is who Jesus is? Because in his day, people were confused. They didn't know who he was. They didn't understand what he said. When he did these things, they thought it was amazing. They marveled at it, but they didn't really fully grasp it. And so we are this morning going to consider who Jesus really is. And we are going to see that the crowds are confused. But we are also going to see, I hope, that you and I do not need to be confused like the crowds were. They didn't get it. They were divided. They, they, they didn't really know who this Jesus was that they were seeing. But you and I don't need to be confused about that. Because the offer of living water in our text is clear for you and for me. But we first got to see what they were confused about. You got to see what they were confused about. There's, there's four different aspects to their confusion, at least in our text this morning. The first one is that they were confused about his home. They're confused about where he came from. See, last week we saw Jesus uh, talking to the crowds and to the religious leaders were hearing him and he was talking about how they thought he was a Sabbath breaker. And then he was challenging them on that and basically saying, no, I'm not, and here's why, and laying it out. And they were amazed at what he was teaching. The crowds marveled at what he was saying and how he was saying it. And so here's the picture that begins to develop. The crowds are listening to Jesus say these things, and they're thinking, wow, this sounds pretty good. We've never heard someone talk like this before. This sounds more brilliant than anything we've considered before. But we also know the religious leaders want this guy dead. So what are we missing? So Jesus is saying these things, sounds good to us, we're waiting for the pushback from the religious leaders, and it's not coming. So we see this in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Yet here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. So can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Here's what they begin wondering. Okay, if Jesus is saying this, and there's not getting any pushback from the religious leaders, does it mean the religious leaders actually know that he really is the Christ? Are they just not letting us in on the secret? 
Is this just the, the people in power trying to keep us lay people in the dark? Is this just some conspiracy that's going on here that they really know the truth and don't want us to see it? They're beginning to wonder. Maybe, maybe they really do believe Jesus is the Christ and we should too. There's confusion that's going on. And the source of the confusion for the crowds is this, that they know where Jesus comes from. Or so they thought. Look at what they say. Here's their confusion in verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. You say, well, well where did they get that from? Well, it seems that they maybe took Malachi 3.1 a little too literally. Because Malachi 3.1 says that the Lord would come into his temple suddenly. And so they appeared to think that what this meant is that when the Lord came, it would be sudden, boom, out of nowhere. Just here he is. He's not there. And then boom, right now he's here. So they thought, well, that's the way it's going to happen. And so we know where this guy comes from. We know his backstory. We know his origin from this little town of Nazareth. Therefore, he can't be the Lord who would suddenly come into his temple. But they didn't even fully know where he came from. Because jump down to verse 42. Jump down to verse 42 and look at what they say. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? What they're saying that is in the context of they don't believe that this Jesus can be the Christ because Jesus is from Galilee, from Nazareth, not Bethlehem. And they knew, Micah said that, that the, the Christ, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And Jesus doesn't come from Bethlehem, he comes from Nazareth. And it shows that they don't even know Jesus as well as they thought they knew Jesus. See, the Christmas story in our day has become so popular that you could walk up to pretty much anybody on the street and say, hey, where was Jesus born? And they would probably be able to tell you, Bethlehem, right? Not so in Jesus' day. They didn't know he came from Bethlehem. They knew Nazareth, they didn't know he was born in Bethlehem. They don't know Jesus as well as they thought they knew Jesus. And maybe you find yourself in a similar spot. You don't know Jesus as well as you thought you did. You thought you had it figured out. You thought you had a pretty good grasp on the scriptures. You thought you had a pretty good idea of who Jesus really is. And yet you encounter some troubling situation in your life. Or you encounter that passage of scripture you hadn't really wrestled with before. Or you are talking with that friend who brings up a point. You're like, I guess I don't know. And maybe you don't know Jesus as well as you thought you did either. But if you are honest about that and you are willing to explore it, there are good answers that are available. There are people who have thought through these things long before us and there are good and real answers to all of these questions. But the people, they spent their time on their own thoughts on their own ideas and their own interpretations. They didn't bother to look into it. They didn't bother to simply ask, where was Jesus really born? But there were good answers available for them. The challenge for us is not just to stay in the same spot as the crowds and assume that we know all of it without needing to investigate it any further. Jesus told them, we saw last week in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And it is more important than anything else that we make sure we are rightly judging Jesus and who he is. But it's interesting that Jesus is not so caught up in making sure they know he's from Bethlehem, but in making sure they know he's from heaven. Because even if they believed that he really was born in Bethlehem and came from there, they would still be missing his true home, his true origin, and that is he came from heaven. You notice his response to them. You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus says, hey, listen, you want to know where I'm really from? From heaven. 
You want to know why I'm here? The Father sent me. His origins do not begin in a manger in Bethlehem. He is the eternal God from everlasting to everlasting, the creator of all things. He says, you know, keep pressing, keep pressing. They don't know where he's from. And it's because they don't know the God who sent him. Think about what Jesus says here to a Jewish audience. He doesn't just tell them, well, you know what, you're worshiping the right God and you're on the right track, just add me onto it. He tells them, the fact that you're not worshiping me means you don't even know the God you claim to worship. It's a stunning rebuke, and that's why they want to arrest him. That's why they want to arrest him, but they can't. They can't. All their attempts prove futile. They're seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. His hour has not yet come. We saw last week that that hour is the hour of his crucifixion. That appointed moment has not arrived, and so the attempts of the crowds to arrest him prove fruitless. So do not think that the hour of crucifixion was the hour when his foes finally caught up to him, or the hour when Jesus finally ran out of energy to keep running away, or the hour when he finally made a misstep, or the hour when his, his enemies finally had him figured out and got a step ahead. No, the hour of his crucifixion was the hour that was appointed by his father for his son to die for the Christ to be sacrificed for his people. This was an hour intended by God, and until that moment came, until that hour came, the crowds could do nothing to take his life. They could do nothing to kill him. They could do nothing to harm him. Jesus knew that his life was secure so long as he was in the purpose and the plan of his loving father. And so too for you and I, friend, that there is nothing that comes our way outside of the loving hand of God who purposes all things for the good of his people. Jesus knew his hour had not yet come. Therefore, they couldn't arrest him, but they were still confused. They were confused about his home, but they were also confused about his destination, where he came from and where he's going. Jesus says to them in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me, for where I am, you cannot come. All right. By this point in John's gospel and our study, I hope that you are not too surprised by the fact that people are confused about what Jesus says. But once again, they're confused about what Jesus says. And they wonder, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus says, okay, I'm leaving I'm going to return to the one who sent me, and because they don't know the one who sent him, they don't know where he's going. They don't get it. So they give their best guess. Well, he must be going to the Greeks. Or, or, or he must be going to the dispersion, meaning the Jews that are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. That's where he must be going. They give up their best guess. They don't think he's going to heaven because they don't know that's where he came from. They don't know that he's going to the Father because they don't know that's where he came from. But it's helpful for us to remember where Jesus was going. And where he is seated now. He ascended into heaven. After his death and his resurrection, he ascended into heaven and is seated right now at the right hand of his Father. And Jesus rules and reigns all things in the universe. And he governs all things for his glory and for your everlasting joy. The sovereign King of the universe, our faithful Savior, our loving friend, Jesus Christ, is on the throne. Jesus says to the crowds that if they didn't know where he came from, they don't really know him. Might we say that if we don't know where he's going, we don't know the comfort that comes from living right now under his loving, sovereign rule for our lives? It's not just that he disappeared. 
It's not just that we're looking around, well, where's Jesus right now? Where is he at? We know where he's at. He's seated on the throne of heaven and he rules all things, including your life for your good and for his glory. There's immense comfort in these words that even when your friends have deserted you, even when it seems that your life is out of control, Jesus is still reigning on the throne because we know where he was going. But this confusion doesn't stop there for the crowds. They're confused about his home. They're confused about his destination. And therefore, because they didn't know where he came from and they didn't know where he was going, they didn't know who he really was. They were confused about his identity as well. See, we pick this up if you jump down to verse 40. It says, when they heard these words, and we'll return to hear what those words are, what Jesus was saying to them, but when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. See, they, they miss who he really is. They don't understand his identity. And because of this, they were divided over these matters. And there are some things that are worth dividing over. The identity of Jesus is not just some agree to disagree type thing. It is not just a thing that, well, that's good for you, but this is good for me. That's true for you, this is true for me. The identity of Jesus is worth dividing over because it's the difference between life and death, truth and error. Now, the identity of Jesus unites people. That's why we're gathered here as a church. There is no other explanation for all of us to be gathered together in the same room like this to do this on a Sunday morning on Labor Day weekend except for the fact that Jesus Christ is alive from the dead and he has united us together into a family. The truth of Jesus unites people, but it also divides. And maybe you know this with friends or family members, coworkers, and it feels like we're, we're just not on the same page because we don't believe the same thing about Jesus. Jesus came to bring peace, yes, but he also came to divide. The question is, who is he? And around that centers our eternity. Who is Christ? See, some people thought he was a prophet. This is picking up on the promise that there would come a prophet greater than Moses. Some are saying he's the Christ, picking up on the fact that the Messiah was promised all throughout the Old Testament. Other people just thought he was a deceiver who was uh, just leading people astray. But you know, the people who thought he was the prophet and the Christ are actually on the right track. Because they're right, he is. But it appears they expected these to be two different people. And we know that that it was one fulfilled in Jesus. He is the prophet and the Christ. They were on the right track. They just weren't fully there. But they were were heading down the right road. But then other people thought, no, this guy's just a deceiver. What he says is actually harmful. What he says is actually leading people away and doing more harm than good. The people are divided about who Jesus is. They don't really know him. And it's that crowd the people who thought he was a deceiver that we meet next because these are the religious leaders who thought he was doing more harm than good, who just wanted him out of the picture, who just wanted the stress out of their lives that he was causing them and say, can we just please get rid of him? And they were confused about his authority. We pick this up in verse 45. So after all the crowds are confused about this, the officers come back to report to them. The officers were sent and said, they said, okay, now you go arrest Jesus and bring him back here. And the officers come back and they come back alone. They don't come back with Jesus. And that leads to the religious leaders being frustrated. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, well, no one ever spoke like this man. 
The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. That's interesting. Nicodemus shows up again. You might remember him. John chapter 3. Jesus has a conversation with the religious leader, and he tells him, you must be born again. The man's name was Nicodemus. He left that conversation. He was not a believer. Nicodemus didn't immediately give his life to Christ. I think we see later in John there might be evidence he did eventually. But by this point, he, he's not really a believer. This is not really a banner confession of faith. If you're saying, hey, what, what, what should my confession of faith be? Don't copy his here. This is not exactly uh, go and do likewise. But it is nonetheless admirable because he speaks up. He's one, of the, he's one of the religious leaders, one of the Pharisees, and he speaks up and says, hey, guys, pause. Time out, time out, time out. Um, you guys are so blinded by your hatred of Jesus that you're not actually following the law you claim to follow. See, the law says that we can't actually judge a guy until we listen to what he does and make sure we give him a hearing to know what he's doing. We can't judge him until that happens. So guys, let's hear him out first. There's something about Jesus that was intriguing enough to Nicodemus. He's like, pause, time out, time out. But of course, that didn't really go well with the other Pharisees. The crowds are amazed at Jesus. The Pharisees are not. The crowds are amazed at his teaching. And the officers come back to the Pharisees and their report is this. No one ever spoke like this man. You've never heard a preacher like Jesus before. You've never heard someone who talks like this before. Matthew chapter 7, it says after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, the, the, the crowds were amazed and astonished because he spoke as one who had authority. Not like the religious leaders did. He, he spoke as one who had authority. People have never heard this kind of teaching before. And wherever Jesus went, people were amazed. They see they never heard anything like that. And some people turned away and said, we don't want to hear that anymore. But there were many people who said, this is something I've never heard before. I want to hear more. Nicodemus is saying, guys, we should listen more before we judge him. No one ever spoke like Jesus before. They've never heard a preacher like Jesus before. And maybe you've been burned out by church. Maybe there's things that have not gone well. Maybe you've had bad experiences with church or with preachers. But listen, no one's ever heard a preacher like Jesus before. Don't give up on him. Listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. Consider Jesus. No one ever spoke like him. Pharisees, though, they're so blinded by their hatred of Jesus, they don't recognize it. They, they miss it. And they model for us what not to do in a situation like this. Right, if you ever find yourself in a situation like this and Jesus is preaching and people are like, oh, okay, here's what not to do. Okay, the Pharisees model it. First, they ask this and the officers come, have you also been deceived? So first they say, okay, you officers, you guys are just deceived too. You guys have just been tricked. You've been duped by Jesus just like the rest of the crowds have been. All right, second, they say, okay, you officers, here's what you need to do. You need to become more like us. Here's what they say. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? He says, okay, yep, you see the crowds are going along with it. Look at us. You see any of us going along with it? No. Why are you? Why don't you just be a little bit more like us? Don't listen to them. Listen to us. Okay. Step three. They're flaunting their credentials. Saying, well, we know a lot more than they do. It says, this crowd does not know the law. And they're accursed. This crowd, they don't know the law. They're not following the law. We do. We know it. 
this crowd, they're under the curse. They don't, they don't get it. And if that's not bad enough, then when Nicodemus, one of their own, speaks up just to say, let's, let's, let's slow down a little bit here, they say, you must be biased, Nicodemus. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee, which, of course, was not technically correct when you look at the Old Testament. But nonetheless, they are, they are, they are blinded from seeing these things clearly. And so they assume, Nicodemus, the only reason you're saying this is because you just want to defend Jesus because you must be from the same place. He's just a hometown kid, and you, you just want to defend him. See, what they're doing is they're assuming the worst about everybody else, and they're assuming the best about themselves and thinking, we got it, you guys are missing it. Just be a little bit more like us. Do not go and do likewise. That's not what to do. See, the Pharisees were all about their own authority. They missed that Jesus spoke with authority in a way that none other had. See, it was the Pharisees who missed it. And what we see is the uneducated laymen that were put down by the religious leaders were the people who were beginning to get it. The crowds were beginning to see The gospel is not some lofty academic concept that can only be grasped by the smartest among us. The gospel is not some pricey artifact that can only be purchased by the wealthiest among us. The gospel is not some great prize that can only be won by the strongest among us. The gospel comes to all people, regardless of their education level or their social status or their their influence. The gospel comes to all people. And we should praise God that there are those who, who devote themselves to studying God's word. But listen... It comes to anyone who is willing to listen and to receive. Anyone humble enough to sit under God's word and say, Jesus, let me hear what you have to say. The gospel comes to anyone. It's not reserved for the religious leaders. In fact, they missed it thinking they knew it. And the crowds are beginning to get it. The great reformer, William Tyndale, um, he was one of the leading figures of the Reformation. He was martyred for his belief that the Bible should be available in the language of the common tongue. That people should actually be able to read the Bible in their own language. And the Roman Catholic Church thought, no, that's, that's certainly not the case. And so it should be the priests and the Pope and, and, and those religious leaders who could study it and understand it. And so Tyndale translated the Bible into English. So he wanted people to be able to read it. And in a conversation with one of these religious leaders, he famously said this, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. If God would spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scripture than you. So he says to this religious leader, he says, listen, if God would give me enough years in my life, I will see to it that a boy in the field driving a plow will know more of the Bible than you do. See, the gospel is not hidden. The gospel is clear and it is available to anyone who is willing to listen to it, to anyone who is humble enough to receive it. The crowds are beginning to see it. The Pharisees are missing it. Jesus speaks with authority. Jesus speaks as someone who will challenge us and the proud will be turned off by it. But those who are humble enough to listen and to consider will find something irresistible about Jesus. See, there's a lot of confusion in our text about who Jesus is. But friend, you do not need to be confused about him. You can be clear. Jesus offers living water. Jesus offers you living water. Look at verse 37. Back up to what we skipped over. Verse 37, we see the offer of Jesus, the words that, begot, that, that got the crowd talking. Jesus offers living water. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. 
For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus walks to the crowds and he makes an offer of living water. We don't need to be confused about that. We can be clear. And yet we also need to consider it in context in order to fully grasp what's happening. Because remember, this was happening at one of the, the, the key religious festivals for Israel. We saw this in chapter 7, verse 2. It told us that this was happening at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's one of their big holidays for the nation of Israel. It was a feast where they remembered God's provision for them in the wilderness as they traversed along to the promised land. Part of this remembering was they remembered how God had provided bread for them from heaven, manna that they could eat and satisfy their hunger. So is it, is it any wonder that John tells us this event right after Jesus says, I am the bread of life in chapter six. But part of this remembrance was how they remembered how God gave them water from the rock in the wilderness to satisfy their thirsts. And we see this connection in the book of Nehemiah. The, the remnant of Israel, they read the law, they remember what they had forgotten. And part of what they had forgotten was the celebration of the Feast of Booths. And so in Nehemiah, it says this, they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the, first, during the Feast of the Seventh Month, that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. What happened was in the wilderness, they pitched their tent and dwelt there. So what did they do this week of remembrance is they pitched tents and dwelt there as remembering what had happened. So they, they're reading in the law what they had forgotten to celebrate this. And the chapter after that says this, they're praising God for his provision. And they say, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and you brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you've sworn to give them. So it seems that part of the celebration of the Feast of Booth was not just remembering God's provision with the bread, but also remembering God's provision with the water. Let me give a refresher of what was happening. In the book of Exodus, God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt. And as they're going along, there's mighty acts, mighty works, miraculous things. And as they're going along, they come and they pitch their tent in the wilderness and there's no water nearby. And so they start complaining. Parents, when your kids ask, are we there yet? They did not invent that. Dates all the way back to Israel in the Exodus, if not before. Not long after leaving Egypt, they are complaining, thinking there's no water here, Moses. Why'd you bring us out here to die of thirst to the desert? It was better for us in Egypt. So what God does, he tells Moses, okay, Moses, take your staff and see that rock? Yep, walk up to the rock and strike the rock. And from the rock will come a, a stream of water and you can drink from that and be satisfied. So God was providing for them water in the wilderness. That's what they were remembering at the Feast of Booths. In fact, at some point along the way, they, they developed some rituals that went along with this. And at some point they developed that, that what they would do is there was this ceremony that included the pouring out of water on the last day of the feast. One of the great one of the pinnacles of this feast, one of the, one of the pinnacles was they would, they would kind of take this water and, and pour it out we can presume symbolically remembering what God had done, pouring out the water from the rock. Well, that happened on the last day of the feast. So look then back at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, which was the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, Jesus walks up, and as they're pouring out this water to remember how God had provided water for them in the wilderness, Jesus gets up among the crowd and starts shouting, listen, guys, it's all about me. 
You want water? Come to me. You want to live? Come to me. You want God to provide for you like he did in the wilderness? Come to me. Jesus is saying it's all about him. So we don't really get it. We don't celebrate the Feast of Booths like they did. But one pastor said it would be like someone dressing up as Santa Claus and walking in, and you'd know exactly what holiday it was all about, right? That's what Jesus is doing. They're, they're pouring out water, and he says, guys, I can give you living water if you come to me. Jesus is saying that he can satisfy thirst in greater ways than anybody imagined. That he can satisfy thirst in deeper ways than anybody else. See, in the Old Testament, Moses struck the rock, and from the rock came water, and the New Testament tells us that rock was Christ. It was Christ who provided the water. And Jesus, the true rock, was struck when his hour came. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, hung upon a cross, and from him proceeds forth rivers of living water from his heart to the heart of all who would trust in him. This is the offer that he's making to the people. Come to me. If anybody is thirsty, come to me, and I will give you a drink. Think about what it's like to have your body crave water. You know your body needs water to live. If you don't have water, you will die. And so you know, I'm desperate for it. If I don't get it, I'm gonna die. So you're thirsty. And think about what it's like when someone gives you a cup of water and says, here you go, drink. And so too, friends, our souls are desperately dependent on Christ for life. Without him, we will wither and die. We cannot have life apart from him. We are stranded in the wilderness. Our tents have been pitched and there's no river nearby. We are alone and we are helpless and we have nowhere to go and we are slowly dying of thirst. And Jesus walks up and says, are you thirsty? Here you go, drink. Drink and be satisfied. Notice his offer. He says, if anyone thirsts and whoever believes in me, it's available to all. This refreshment, this nourishment, this satisfaction is available to anyone and to everyone. See, Jesus knows what our souls most desperately need. He knows that there is this thirst within us that, it, that cannot be quenched so easily by the things of the world, that cannot be fully engaged and indulged in selfish, sinful pleasures. He knows all of that. And so he makes a free offer. He says, are you thirsty? That's the question. Notice the question is not, well, let's see how good you've been this week. Tell me what you've done. The question is not, hey, why don't you clean yourself up a little bit and then come to me and we'll see. The question is simple. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Isaiah 55, we read earlier, come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, friends, this water cannot be acquired by money or influence or social status or reputation. The Pharisees were not in any more privileged position to get it than the crowds were. This water cannot be gained any of those ways. Jesus simply asks, are you thirsty? And then invites us to come. So the question for you is, are you thirsty this morning? Are you aware of your brokenness and your sin? Are you aware of that ache within your heart that knows something isn't right? Are you aware that there is an insatiable desire for satisfaction that lurks within you that can't be met anywhere else? Jesus is not surprised by this, nor is he turned away by it. He knows all of it. You might be confused about Jesus, but Jesus is not confused about you. He knows exactly where you're at and who you are. That's why he came. That's why he was sent from his father to this world to redeem his people, that he would be offered up when his hour did come, as a sacrifice for many that he could offer to all, if anyone thirsts, come to me. Come to me. 
So Jesus knows that we will die an eternal death because of our sins unless he comes and offers us something to drink. And that's why in the middle of the crowd, in the middle of the feast, he starts shouting these words. Earlier, he had said this to a woman at the well in John chapter four. That conversation happened privately. Now he's going public and saying, anybody who hears this, anybody, and that includes you and me today. Anyone who hears his words. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Only Jesus can satisfy me. Only Jesus can heal the deepest aches of my heart. Only Jesus can deal with my sin, ultimately. Only Jesus can give me a lasting joy and satisfy a thirst that will never run out. Jesus gives an offer of water that will never dry up. This river never runs dry. And it's because he doesn't just offer you a cup of water and say, here you go, Lord bless you and keep you, see ya. He gives a, a river of living water. Commentator said it like this, to those in the desert, a cup of water is great, but a river of water changes their lives. And Jesus says this river is the Holy Spirit and that his spirit will be placed in the heart of anyone who comes to him by faith. Look at this, we see this in verse 39. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now I wanna be clear that nobody has ever been saved apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, Old Testament or New Testament. Nobody has ever been saved unless the Spirit of God regenerates their hearts, causes them to believe, gives them faith, and brings them to faith in Christ. Nobody has been saved apart from that. But the Spirit in the Old Testament, he was only anointing particular people, dwelling in particular you know, priests and kings and some of, those, some of those select leaders. Jesus says there's something different that's coming. And the difference is not, oh, previously you didn't have the Spirit, now you do. No, the Spirit has always been at work, but now there's something decisively different about what's going to happen. And that Jesus says that his Spirit will come and indwell every single believer. The anointing of the Spirit will be upon every single person who trusts in Christ. That has not yet happened in our text. When Jesus died, he rose, he ascended into heaven, and after he went to heaven, he sent his Spirit at Pentecost to live within the hearts of every single believer. If you are a Christian here this morning, the Holy Spirit of God lives within you. And he has created in your heart a spring of living water that's a flowing river that you can drink and be satisfied forever. It's not one cup, it's a river that lasts. And the Spirit continues to cause us to see Jesus and not be confused. The Spirit continues to cause us to drink from Christ and not be thirsty. And the Spirit continues to, to cause us to be nourished by the river of the never-ending love of God shown towards you in Christ Jesus. To nourish you moment by moment in the mercies of the gospel. And you know, the fact that this is a river reminds us that it is always available to us when we thirst. But it also reminds us that we always need it. And we always need to drink from it. There's a big difference. Um, going through life, if you uh, drive through a drive-through before a long journey and you get a cup of water and you think, okay, we better make this last for the whole trip. Or if you pitch a tent next to a river and say, anytime I'm thirsty, I can just drink from it right here. And sometimes, without even really knowing it, we live the Christian life as if Jesus has given us a cup of water and said, here you go, drink, and hope, you know, hope this lasts for the rest of your life because you're going to need it. But instead, he gives us a river of water flowing from our hearts that we can drink any time you want and be satisfied. 
Now, it sounds great. You're like, yes, I'm fired up about this. And yeah, yeah, uh, this is awesome. The Holy Spirit, you know, all this is great. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, when I wake up, we're going to be tempted to run after another stream. We're going to be tempted to go looking for some other source of water, thinking that's what's going to really satisfy me. That's what's going to really give me joy. In that moment, thinking that's what I want more than Jesus. And so this is a day by day, moment by moment, dwelling here, saying, I'm going to pitch my tent right here, and I'm not going to leave. I'm going to sit here, I'm going to drink from this river that will never run dry, I will never grow tired of, and the Holy Spirit will continue to keep me here. It's a moment-by-moment thing, friend. And yet we can rest in Jesus and delight in him and not need to go running to other places to be satisfied, but can come to him. You know, in in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series, there's a... uh, there's a moment where a young girl named Jill goes, uh, she sees a lion and she gets terrified by him. And so she takes off running the opposite direction. She keeps running and running and running and running until eventually she cannot run anymore. She is completely exhausted. She has spent all of her energy and all of her effort running away from the lion. And now she knows she's desperately thirsty. And if she doesn't get a drink, she's going to die. And so she's in the middle of the woods and she hears a a stream nearby. She says, well, that that must be what I want. So she goes looking and and right as she sees the river, she sees the lion sitting there next to the river. So she stays in the woods and she stays hiding, hoping that he'll leave. And eventually she realizes her thirst is so great that she has to just go and try. And so then she hears the lion begin to talk and I'll read from Lewis now. The lion says, if you are thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken, but then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Well, then drink, the lion said. Well, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Well, do you eat girls? She asked fearfully. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Well, then I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Well, then you'll die of thirst, the lion said. Oh, dear, Jill said, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, the lion said. It had never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could ever do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing that she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. And it was the coldest, most refreshing water that she had ever tasted. Maybe it seems terrifying to you like it was for Jill to come forward to that river because maybe you have spent your entire life running away from God. You turned and ran the other direction and now you're hiding in the woods hoping he doesn't notice. Maybe that's been the story of your life. Maybe you recognize that now in a way that you didn't before. So it can be terrifying to come to this river. And so we want to begin bargaining I say, well, 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 well here's, here's why I come. And, 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 and as the lion says to, to Jill, you either come on my terms or you don't come at all. So Jesus says to us, this is who I am and this is what I say. Are you gonna come? It's a terrifying prospect to many of us in our sin. You start thinking, okay, well, am I really that thirsty? 
Or maybe I'll go looking for some other stream somewhere else. And we need to hear the words, there is no other stream. There is no other source of eternal life. There is no other stream that will truly and fully satisfy your souls. There is nowhere else you can go to find the ultimate fulfillment and longing that lurks in your heart that you just desperately desire. There is nowhere else to go. There is no other stream. There are two paths before you. There is coming and drinking the water of Christ or there is dying in your thirst. There is no other stream to go to. And Jesus comes and offers it. If anybody is thirsty. Are you thirsty today, friend? If anyone thirsts, let him come to him and drink. See, when Israel was in the wilderness and they needed water, God provided for them. That's what they were remembering at the Feast of Booths, but then Jesus walked up and he had a greater offer than they were remembering. To all who are in the wilderness of their sin, to all who are dying in their thirst, he offers them living water. So the question for you and for me this morning is are you thirsty? And if so, then hear the words of Jesus. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we recognize, we confess, we are well aware of our thirst and our need for a savior. We confess the ways in which we have run after other streams, thinking they will satisfy us when they won't. Lord, we confess that we have run from you. And yet here you are, offering to us living water to anyone who is thirsty. I pray that you would satisfy us in the rivers of Christ, that your Holy Spirit who dwells within us would cause us to to remember the mercies of God toward us in deeper ways, that we would be satisfied in Christ in deeper ways that we'd be nourished by the Spirit in deeper ways. Lord, would you do that in our hearts? And I pray for those who are thirsty and have never tasted of this water. Holy Spirit, would you cause them to come and to drink? We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your work, that you came for us. You came to satisfy the thirst and to give us life. May we never grow tired and never stray away from this river of life, but be fully and forever satisfied in you, for you deserve all of it, and you are better than anything we could get anywhere else. Lord, we ask all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. You know, earlier we, uh, we began our service reading Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. You realize that this offer of living water is not found by anything that we bring to the table. It's based solely in his grace. All we bring is our thirst and he provides everything else. Our worth is not found in money or fame or beauty. It's not found in anything except for the finished work of Christ. So let's stand as a church and let's sing that together. Let's remember and remind one another that our worth is found in Christ and in Christ alone.